Greetings to my lovely audience. My name is Sylvan. I use he, him pronouns, and welcome back to LGBTQSU. I hope you guys are having a wonderful break so far and that you're having a great day. I am having, I'm having a pretty good day. Um, I, I had, I got a later start than I had wanted actually, um, but that's just because I was up till like 4 a.m. last night. Um, but you know, it's fine. Uh, yeah, it's, it's still December 12th. It's currently, uh, 4 p.m. actually. So I went to bed about 12 hours ago. Um, but, you know, it's still been a very productive day. Um, most of it has been spent writing the scripts for these episodes and these pre-recordings. Um, but, you know, it's, it's been fine. Uh, I am, I still have to work, I still have to do my Spanish studying for tonight for my 8 a.m. Spanish final tomorrow. So that's, that's, that's delightful. I am so happy about that. But yeah, so as I had mentioned last episode, this is actually the second part of di- the discussion of hormone replacement therapy, or HRT. Uh, so today we are discussing the effects of transmasculine hormone replacement therapy, and also discussing the long-term health side effects of hormone replacement therapy for both feminizing and masculinizing. Because, um, you know, as I stated last episode, um, it hasn't been around long enough and used for trans people to know the full extent of the side effects, but there have been some that have been discovered and I do find it really important to talk about um, because it can affect your ability to start hormones or it may you know, change your mind about what you're willing to do. Um, so without further ado, let us get into it. So discussing transmasculine HRT and anything, you know, as I mentioned last time, uh, anything that I did not know already myself, uh, so like the exact uh, methods of of uh, administering the hormones, uh, the risk factors, the timing for various symptoms. Um, Those are all pulled from Mayo Clinic, a very well-respected medical website. Um, But anything else is coming from my own knowledge. And I will also have a lot more personal commentary for this section as I am taking transmasculine HRT. I am taking testosterone. And as I mentioned last time with the transfeminine HRT, I, I don't have very many people in my life that are on feminizing HRT and for those that I am that I do know I either haven't talked about it with them extensively or I do not feel comfortable sharing their personal stories without their permission so anyway transmasculinizing HRT so uh, transmasculine people will actually usually only take testosterone in some form though for those with a persistent menstrual flow you may also be prescribed progesterone Um, I'm actually taking a form of progesterone uh, through the form of Nexplanon. Uh, It's a form of birth control that I was actually on uh, way longer than I, like way before I started uh, HRT. Um, It's the, so Nexplanon is an implant in your arm and it releases progesterone. Um, And for me, I was using it to stop my menstrual menstrual flow and my menstrual cycle. Um, and it changes for everybody the the you know extent of that working. Um, but I do actually plan on talking about various things that you can do as a trans person besides uh, you know hormone replacement therapy and surgeries. And one of those things that I will include for trans masculine people is the use of, of birth control to stop their period. So I will be talking about that ex- extensively some other time. But uh, just you know I digress. I am taking a form of progesterone, and I was before I started. Um, so the most common injection or the most common methods for taking testosterone are injections or a gel. Um, injections are like the most well-known, um, but according to the according to the Mayo Clinic, it's actually about as popular as the gel. Um, but there are also patches, and in the U.S., there's a pellet that can be uh, injected into the skin, kind of in the same way as Nexplanon, like with the implant in your arm, um, and it really it's like a long-lasting. Uh, 
it's like a long-lasting injection or a long-lasting effect um so those are available in the u.s and in some other countries but um i believe exclusively in the u.s according to mayo clinic uh there is also a pill and an injection that is longer lasting than most injections so most of the time the injections that you will take will be once a week or or every two weeks i'm taking every two weeks um but there are longer lasting ones that i believe would also function in a similar way to another type of birth control that i also tried um which i'm actually completely forgetting the name of uh it's not it's like i want to say derma something but that derma is skin so i don't think it's that but there's like a birth control that you take a shot every three months and it it works um so i'm it works as well as far as i can tell it works in a similar way to that it's just a longer lasting injection so you don't have to you know stab yourself in the thigh as often um so i do want to talk about reasons that a doctor may hesitate or refuse to prescribe hormone replacement therapy um, i talked about this last time and it's for the most part the same list but there are actually some additions to this and you know a slight modification in the first example um, so a doctor may hesitate or refuse to prescribe HRT if you have had or have a hormone-sensitive cancer like breast cancer. Last time I had mentioned that prostate cancer was the one for feminizing HRT. For masculinizing, it is breast cancer. So if you have had or, or, or currently have something like breast cancer, um, breast cancer and I believe like ovarian and uterine cancer, are uh, they can be triggered and made worse by variations in your hormone levels. So... Um, Doctors may hesitate or refuse if you have had or have them um, because they don't want to increase your risk of worsening your cancer or having the cancer come back. Um, unfortunately, the article did not did not mention like alternative methods or different ways to get around this, but it just listed that this is a reason that you know you might not be able to start HRT. Um, some other some other problems are a thromboembolic disease, which I mentioned last time. It's a severe it's essentially a severe blood clot that will occur usually in like the deep veins or arteries in your body. It is very dangerous um, and variations in hormone levels can make these worse. Um, one of the new additions to the list is if you are pregnant or breastfeeding. This may seem kind of obvious, but you know, of course, if you are if your body is fueled by testosterone, it will not function in a way that is conducive to preg to pregnancy or breastfeeding. Um, and it can put both you and the baby at risk. Um, so a doctor will, you know, usually hesitate or refuse. Well, okay, by hesitate, n no. If you're pregnant or breastfeeding, a doc uh, any good, respectable doctor will not let you start HRT. Um, but so there's that. And then the other, the other examples from last time are any uncontrolled behavioral conditions or significant mental conditions, as well as any conditions that limit your ability to provide informed consent. Um, so as I mentioned last time, it's not a complete... It's, it's not the end of the world if you've been diagnosed with like depression, anxiety, even things like OCD, which are more rare. All of those things I have been diagnosed with and I had no problem getting prescribed HRT due to those things because I have them under control and I am, you know, in therapy. I am medicated for those conditions. I have it under control. So my doctor did not feel that uh, putting me on hormone replacement therapy and therefore possibly messing with my emotional state would end up with, you know, basically guarantee with me being, uh, you know, emotionally vulnerable to the point of becoming a danger to myself or others. Um, so that was not an issue. If you have been diagnosed with various mental conditions or behavioral conditions, it's not the end of the world. Just make sure that you're talking with your doctor and have everything under control. And additionally, another issue is if you plan to become pregnant in the future, your doctor may instruct you to wait or to save your eggs before you start, which that can be really expensive. 
it is not impossible to become pregnant on testosterone, but it is a lot harder. And if you do wish to continue with the pregnancy, you will have to stop HRT. I do want to actually say as a side note, at like the fact that it's not impossible to become pregnant on HRT, on HRT, specifically testosterone, is a really important thing to know, especially if you are sexually active, especially if you are having unprotected sex, which of course you shouldn't be having unprotected sex if you aren't sure that both you and your partner are STD free, but it, it testosterone is not inherently a birth control. It makes it a lot harder to become pregnant, but especially if you if you and your family have a history of being very fertile, you will still want to practice safe sex and wear a condom, wear protection, or you know have something have some birth control like you know Nexplanon that runs on progesterone, which will not increase the estrogen in your body because some some birth controls do do increase uh, estrogen in your body, which of course that's not what you want. Um, but there are various hormonal like there are various non-hormonal birth controls and hormonal birth controls that can work very well alongside testosterone. So, you know, stay in, stay in contact with your doctor, have that conversation. It's like, if you are sexually active, you do need to know that it is not impossible to become pregnant on T, which is, you know, the short, shortened version of testosterone. Um, but those are all of the reasons that, uh, at least in this article, that a doctor may hesitate or refuse to prescribe HRT. So now moving on to the changes. Um, as I mentioned beforehand, uh, a lot of this information is from Mayo Clinic. And I will be discussing all of this, all of the symptoms that Mayo Clinic does not discuss at the end of this list. Uh, and also the timing that Mayo Clinic has listed, it is not the same for everybody. Talk to your doctor if you're concerned about certain changes not happening or, oh, I don't want this change. So when will this happen? What can we do to fix that? Stuff like that. So, you know, talk with your doctor about that. So, but anyway, moving on to the list, the first thing listed is your period will stop or at least it should, between the, the first two to six months. And um, like that is usually one of the first things that people will notice is that they, their period will stop. Um, it's pretty self-explanatory. You know, your menstrual, cycle, your menstrual cycle will end. But as I mentioned earlier, some people will take progesterone or other, or other hormones like that alongside with testosterone if they have a particularly uh, persistent menstrual cycle. Um, or a very heavy flow that is not responding well to the testosterone. Um, it really depends on the person. I honestly have no idea if I will be if I will need to continue with the progesterone once I have to get this implant out. Because with with Nexplanon and other implanted birth controls, they're not permanent. You do have to replace them eventually. Um, so I'm not actually sure if I will have to continue with the progesterone or if my body will respond well enough to the testosterone or if at that point it won't even matter because it's been so long. Um, but I have not had my period since actually even before I started testosterone. So again, it's, I'm not really sure. Um, but yeah, so that's the first thing. And then the next thing on the list is your voice deepening. This will happen between, uh, within three to 12 months with the maximum effect within one to two years. So AMAB vocal, vocal folds, or known as vocal cords commonly, are naturally thicker than AFAB cords, which is what produces that deeper sound. So with testosterone, it will thicken your vocal cords and or your vocal folds in order to produce a deeper sound. Fun fact, this was actually like basically the main thing that I was looking forward to, but it was also one of the things I was terrified of because I was terrified of how it would affect my singing voice. Unfortunately, there are a few documented cases of people's singing voices being very negatively affected by testosterone. Um, and a lot of what will happen is your, your vocal range will shrink for a while. Um, 
like I know before I started testosterone, I had like a th- at least a three octave range, which I'm sorry for those who don't know musical lingo, but basically that's a very wide range and I could go very, very high and pretty low for an AFAB person. When I started testosterone and my voice started changing, my voice, my vocal range didn't lower first, it actually shrank first. Like I, I just wasn't able to get as high before I could start singing lower. I can sing lower now, but um, my range is is smaller than it used to be. I have worked it out to be about a two and a half octave range at this point, which I'm very happy about. Um, and at this point, actually, as of tomorrow, I am May, June, July, August, September, October, November. I'm eight months on T tomorrow. <laughs> I can't do math very well without counting it out. Um, but I'm actually eight months on T tomorrow, and I have worked my way to about a two and a half octave range, which is very relieving because I was very upset about. The, the idea of not having a good singing voice because for anybody who knows me personally you will already know that singing is an incredibly vital part of my life and I would be devastated if testosterone ruined that for me um, I will say you know don't be you know too alarmed because the the cases of it being completely ruined are very few and like far few and in between and oftentimes it is also it's not just the testosterone that does this like there there's something else that happened um, but I do know that for me personally, something that has been incredibly helpful is I've been working with a professor here at Susquehanna that is extremely well-versed in the pedagogy of singing, and her knowledge has been absolutely vital to my transition and the health of my voice. Um, in the interest of not identifying myself, because I actually do talk about her name a lot, um, I will not be sharing her name, and I also didn't have, I didn't ask for her permission to share her name before coming onto the podcast today. But if you are interested, um, especially if you're at Susquehanna and you're interested in talking with her, um, I will, you know, me- shoot me a message on Instagram at Sylvan underscore on WQSU. Uh, and I will ask for her permission to share her information and I will get you that. Um, but she has been incredibly helpful because she knows so much, like all of the ins and outs of the science of how you sing and the difference between an AMAB person and an AFAB person singing. And her knowledge has been so incredibly helpful. And I genuinely don't think that my voice would be this far along and this healthy without her help. Um, one of my favorite examples to tell, like to, to share of her knowledge and how she's helped me is when my voice first started dropping, I, I feel like, okay, like the best way to describe it is like, you know how in a whistle, there's like a ball inside that rattles around when you're whistling it? I don't actually know what the point of the ball is, but a lot of the times in a whistle, there will be that ball there. It it felt like there was one in the back of my throat, like in the back of my neck. Like it, I could feel and almost hear something vibrating whenever I, I would talk. And I brought this up to her and actually like one of the first times, if not the first time meeting with her and discussing my transition and my voice in depth, um, She's she's my uh, private vocal teacher as well, which I, I had emailed her before our lesson started letting her know that I was transitioning, um, which she found very helpful because she could do her own research before we met up. But when uh, when we were first meeting, uh, we actually almost exclusively just talked about it rather than singing. Um, and when I told her about this, she said, OK, well, obviously, I don't know if this is for certain. I won't I wouldn't know that unless we had like an X-ray or something. But given my knowledge of the anatomy of your throat and your vocal folds, um, there is a bone back there that does vibrate when you talk. And as your, you know, your body does filter out a lot of different noises that your body makes. Um, like you don't hear your, you don't hear your blood moving most of the time unless it's like dead silent and then you can hear it. 
Um, but your body filters out a lot of the noises within your body in order to not be distracted by them and, you know, for evolutionary purposes, be able to, like, your body wants to be able to hear the tiger that's 30 feet away from you over your heart pumping. So it filters out those noises, but because the vibration was different and it was a different sound, it was a lower vibration, it was a new sound being produced, so my body hadn't learned to tune it out yet. Um, so at this point, like, my body has learned to tune it out. If I focus hard enough, I can still hear and feel it now, but most people wouldn't be able to just because they haven't had the experience of their voice dropping so quickly to the point where their body just doesn't have the time to start naturally tuning that sound out. Um, but I would have never been able to find that out without her knowledge. Like I wouldn't even, I, I didn't even know what to Google to try to find this information. So she has been so incredibly helpful and I can, I very much recommend finding pedagogical resources on the anatomy of singing if you are concerned about your singing voice when going on testosterone. And even if you're not concerned about the singing, it does also play into just like normal talking, which, and it's also just very interesting. So if that sounds interesting to you, I like, please do look up the pedagogical anatomy and science of singing and all of that stuff. It's very interesting. Um, but continuing on, uh, so another thing that you will experience is facial and body hair growth. That will start within the first three to six months with the maximum effect within three to five years. Um, so for me, I actually already had a mustache going into this because, you know, Italian genetics, but it's gotten a lot longer and a lot darker. And currently I wouldn't necessarily say that it's much thicker, um, but it is much more noticeable and it's only getting more noticeable. Um, I also have a couple little chin hairs and I look like a greasy middle schooler. It's great. <laughs> but uh, the specifics of that uh, is all of the hair on your body will start to grow in longer and darker. Depending on your genetics, it will affect various parts of your body differently. Um, I personally officially have the second pair of wool pants going, which something that I found interesting is that at least for me the way that my hair like that my leg hair started growing in longer and thicker is it wasn't like all slowly all over my leg at once it actually like basically just grew from like my ankles up and it just started getting thicker and it was really weird I'm really not sure why that happened but that I just found that really funny um and then for facial hair um that especially depends on your genetics um but even so even if you do have a family history of really good facial hair, testosterone dif affects your body dif in different ways than it would naturally, like, you know, as naturally occurring. Um, so you still may not get a lot of facial hair. I really hope to get a, fa I really hope to get facial hair. I really like the idea of having to shave every day. Um, but it really depends on your genetics and just you as a person and how the testosterone interacts with your body. So moving on from that, uh, you will also experience body fat redistribution. This will also occur within the first three to six months with a maximum effect between uh, two and five years. So the body fat around your body, that was redundant, the body fat on you will redistribute in a more masculine pattern with like, for example, a straighter torso. Uh, generally, you're, you will have more belly fat versus like more fat in your thighs and your hips um, and more structure in your face. Um, and it, this also depends on your genetics and what your family looks like. Um, and unfortunately, the breast tissue won't exactly shrink. Um, you cannot completely get rid of it just with testosterone unless you were very small to begin with. And even then, most of the time, there will still be extra breast tissue there that a cis man wouldn't have. Um, the shape of the tissue may change, though, both as extra fat redistributes because your breast can get bigger if you are like a heavier set person and then if you lose weight you may experience just like 
you know, smaller breasts, which will happen as your body fat redistributes. And also the connective tissues in your breast will become less elastic. Um, and so, you know, therefore, if your chest is particularly perky, they will most likely not be as perky later on, um, which, you know, is a little unfortunate for some people. But for a lot of transmasculine people, that doesn't matter. In fact, it actually made binding easier for me because it was like the, the breast tissue was less elastic in like it was it just it it's more malleable now versus before where it was a bit more firm. I have found that binding is a lot easier. And also like the the shape of my you know, the shape of my chest has become more like very fatty pectorals rather than breasts, which I find very interesting, which again aids in binding. Um, moving along, you will also experience increased muscle mass and strength uh, within the first six to 12 months and a maximum effect within two to five years. So testosterone, as I discussed last time, makes you naturally more inclined to achieve muscle tone. So you will probably notice changes even if you don't work out. Um, like for me, I don't, I don't work out ever. The most I'll do is like I'll walk on a treadmill occasionally, but you know, that's just a bunch of cardio. But my shoulders were actually fairly nice beforehand, if I do say so myself, just as a result of genetics. And also, you know, even though I don't work out, I have, you know, I, I, I am involved in drumline. Like I was involved in drumline a lot in school, which involved a lot of pushing things and a lot of walking around and like exercise, just not intentional exercise. So my shoulders and my biceps are actually pretty nice, but they're really nice now, like especially my biceps, considering I have not worked out like my, my shoulders and my arms whatsoever since starting testosterone. So that's very nice. Um, and now we are moving into the last thing. Um, it wasn't actually last on the list, but I did wanna talk about it last because of the content. Um, it is clitoral enlargement and vaginal atrophy. Um, so again, it's kind of a sketchy line considering this is a school sponsored podcast, but this is exclusively for educational purposes and I will be keeping everything very clinical, but of course, feel free to skip ahead if you're uncomfortable with the content. Um, so this is commonly referred to as bottom growth, and it will occur between, Mayo Clinic says between three to 12 months. It was actually like the first thing that I noticed was like, things felt a little different down there. And I was just generally more aware, like I was aware things were happening, um, but they say within three to 12 months. For me, it was like literally within like three weeks. Um, and then the maximum effect within one to two years. Uh, so without getting inappropriate, here's, here's my best explanation as to what that looks like and why that's happening. So if you're unaware, every fetus in the womb starts off female. Um, and then when the Y chromosome starts to you know, do stuff, the ovaries that have developed descend to form the testicles and the clitoris becomes the phallus. So the same thing is happening here actually, just only on the outside. Of course, your urethra will not magically you know, string itself through that, but, you know, it will enlarge and start to kind of resemble a phallus. Um, Mayo Clinic does not have these details, but from what I have read, uh, it will usually grow between three quarters of an inch to up to three inches. Uh, it depends on what your anatomy looked like prior because, you know, everybody's anatomy looks different. Um, some people have a more naturally protruding clitoris beforehand, and some people don't, and some people, they're they just respond very well to it. Uh, so it really depends, but I, on average, I've seen between one to two inches usually is like the average. Um, and again, school-sponsored po podcast, this is for educational purposes, no ulterior motives, but I do wanna mention, this can change how sex feels. And um, like, and the vaginal atrophy also is 
essentially the fluids that your genitals secrete naturally to clean and to make sex easier will not be produced as much, if at all, which can make it more dry, which can affect sex, and also can affect like comfort in walking. Um, so this combined with bottom growth can actually, it does actually scare a lot of transmasculine people, um, and a lot of people are afraid of it going into it, especially because most of the time the only conversations about bottom growth are about how uncomfortable it can be. And yes, it can be really uncomfortable sometimes, totally, but it's been incredibly affirming to me, and it was, and again, it was literally like one of the first things I noticed, um, which I was okay with that, and it does not have to ruin things for you if you know, you are afraid of it messing with your sex life, talk with your doctor. Um, especially in regards to the vaginal atrophy, I've heard of many people applying a topical estrogen gel or cream to the area, which does not affect the estrogen levels in the body, but it just secretes enough estrogen in that area to keep things, you know, functioning the way that they were before. Um, and it's different for everybody. Everybody has different levels of that, but that is all I will say on that topic without getting inappropriate for the podcast or, you know, being TMI. Uh, so those are all the lists. Those are all the things listed in the symptoms, like in the changes list on Mayo Clinic. But others include emotional changes. Yes, you will be more prone to anger and cry less, most likely. It changes with every person. Some people have no emotional changes. Some people have extreme emotional changes. Um, but you know, just keep that in mind. And you know, we can, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna punish cis men for being too angry at things, then you also have to hold yourself accountable in making sure that you're not blowing up at people for no reason. Um, other symptoms can be hair loss as, if it runs in your family. Um, as I mentioned last time, it's it's genetics aren't an exact science, but it has been researched and it's often believed that hair like your hair genetics run through your mother's side of the family. So even if your dad is bald, you if your mom's side is, you know, does not have male pattern baldness, you are less likely to experience it, but testosterone can kind of mess things up if it's not naturally occurring. So there is that. Um, others include increased sweating and body odor changes. Your body odor doesn't inherently get worse, but you do tend to sweat a lot more, which can make it a lot stronger. And the actual scent itself will change. It's just different. And also, as a note, it's not just your sweat. It's all bottle. It's all body odor. Like, your pee will smell different. <laughs> um, so I was not prepared for that. I was not told that. And then I talked to some other trans people that I know, and they were like, oh my god, yeah, my pee smells different now. <laughs> so that was interesting. Um, other symptoms include increased libido, as testosterone does make you more inclined to have a higher sex drive. And the final thing is coarser and oilier, and coarser, more oily skin. Um, especially as you know, all of the changes are happening very rapidly, you will tend to have more oily skin, which can make you more prone to acne, which um, can also be made worse by the fact that you know your hair follicles are opening up all over your body in order to start growing hair. But you know, before the hair's there, there's room for you know dirt and sweat and oil to get in so it's very important to be washing regularly you know have a facial routine especially if you are prone to acne in the past for me it has really only been a problem on my chest and my shoulders and back my face of course i've had some i've had some breakouts but it hasn't really been, been a big issue for me but i also never really had severe acne in the first place so it really depends on the person. There are also various other symptoms that have been observed, but they haven't been studied, so I don't want to go super, super into it at this time. And then it would also just get like really specific. So I would like to talk about uh, the permanent, semi-permanent, and reversal changes for testosterone and estrogen, which I actually meant to talk about these last time, but I 
didn't have that in that part of the script. So I'll be talking about them both and then talking about the long-term health effects, which means that this episode will actually also be a proper time. So good for you guys. Happy, you know, Merry Christmas. You got a long episode. Um, so various changes on hormone replacement therapy are permanent and some are kind of permanent and some are completely reversible. Um, so I will go into the specifics for trans masculine first since that's what we're on and then I'll talk about trans feminine and then we'll talk about the long-term uh, health risks. So for transmasculine, all of the permanent changes are bottom growth, like once it grows, it will not go back. Uh, your voice deepening, if you're still at the very beginning and your voice hasn't changed that much, it might go back a little bit, but in general, it will stay lowered. Um, if you've experienced the start of hair loss, that will still that will still be there. Um, also, if your hair has started to grow on your face, um, it will continue to grow, but I'll talk about that more in the semi-permanent. Um, and also fertility issues. That's kind of in between permanent and semi-permanent, but it is likely that you will have continued issues with fertility, especially if you were on testosterone for a really long time. Um, but moving into the semi-permanent, that is the hair growth. Um, any new spots that started to grow will continue to, but they will not grow in as thick or as long, and it will also not grow in as quickly. Like if you've started growing chin hairs, they will not grow super quickly if you stop taking testosterone. And the ones that are completely reversible, are the body fat redistribution. Um, the only thing that might not change is if your breast tissue has started to you know, be more droopy um, or if it's just not as elastic or perky as before, it, that will not change, but everything else will redistribute back. Um, your menstruation will most likely start again and uh, your increased muscle mass and strength will diminish. Um, not that it'll completely go away, especially if you work out regularly, but the, the natural inclination for uh, increased muscle mass will go away. Um, for trans feminine, the permanent things are, um, let's see, I'm thinking here, uh, you know, different, uh, like breast tissue development, that will, that will stay. Um, let me see, I'm going to actually scroll down to the, to the systems list because I forgot to put that in the other section, which is why I didn't do that, which is my bad. Um, uh, so for permanent, uh, testicular atrophy, um, they might go back like kind of, but it's it is going to have a long term effect, which will also have a long term effect on your on your libido and your fertility. Um, that's that's kind of it for the permanent ones. For semi permanent, uh, it is like decreased libido. It really depends on the person uh, and the slowing of scalp hair loss. Um, it again, it really depends on the person. Um, like I said in the last episode, you won't. You most likely won't experience the regrowth of hair that's already been lost, um, but it really depends on the person how your body reacts if you were to stop estrogen. Um, and then uh, the the reversible ones are decreased facial hair and body hair growth. It will just start to grow back the same at the same rate. Uh, the decreased muscle mass, you will start to once again be inclined to have more muscle tone. Uh, your body fat will redistribute back to a more masculine presentation, uh, and your skin will start to get more rough and more oily again. Um, and then for both of those, actually, the emotional changes are reversible. You will most likely uh, go back to the same emotional state that you were prior to starting HRT for both masculinizing and feminizing. And the same thing applies for various things to be monitored afterwards. Uh, you know, physical and emotional changes should be monitored. Um, many people will keep a journal or vlogs to document stuff. Um, and some people will keep it to themselves, some people will publish it. And it is very helpful for your doctor to make sure that you're being aware of what's changing. Um, and then in getting your blood work done, there 
as I mentioned last time, monitoring hormone concentration, changes in lipids, blood sugar, blood count, liver enzymes, and electrolytes all in your blood. Um, and also, as I mentioned last time, uh, this, I, this is confirmed for testosterone. If you overload your body with testosterone, it will actually start to be converted back into estrogen, which, as we all can guess, is not what you want. So keeping the hormone concentration level is very important. And then the other things, um, you know, as your body starts to run primarily on testosterone, your body will start to have naturally occurring levels of, you know, blood sugar, blood count, all the other things that an AMAB person will have. Um, so yes, even if you don't have the injections as your method of administering the testosterone, you will still have to get blood work done. It's just part of the process. Thankfully, um, my doctor has had me, uh, like she says that, like if for right now it's every three months, but eventually it'll go to every six months, and then eventually once a year I'll have to get blood work done. So it's not gonna be a, a very common thing for the rest of your life. Um, additionally, you will still want to get routine breast cancer screening done, even if you get top surgery. If you're not comfortable with or you don't believe in routine mammograms, the breast, uh, the breast cancer screenings, or if you have had top surgery, self-breast examinations are still very recommended. It's good for everyone, but especially when you're messing with your hormone levels and changing things very rapidly, the breast tissue can be very sensitive to those changes and it, it can cause issues. So, you know, doing a daily, like a, not a, well, I mean, you can do a daily examination, but doing a monthly examination of your breasts to make sure that there's no changes in the appearance of nipples, uh, that there's no hard lumps or that anything is, like make sure, making sure nothing's sore or tender is really important. So that wraps up the extra symptoms. And because we are actually already over time, I am, I'm not going to speed through the last thing, but you know, I'm not going to take too much time on it, but thankfully it's not really that much. So the long-term effects have not been studied in full as hormone replacement therapy for transgender people has not been around long enough to do so. However, some long-term risk factors have already been discovered. According to endocrinologyadvisor.com, for the, for the record, and or not for the record, but just for your information, endocrinology, for those who don't know, is often who you, you may actually see an endocrinologist when you're on testosterone or estrogen as they are the ones that monitor hormone levels and blood levels and stuff. So according to endocrinologyadvisor.com, a team of experts assessed the results of 13 different studies on the long-term health risks of hormone replacement therapy. These studies show that transmasculinizing HRT increases the risk of cardiovascular diseases, but only to the same levels as cis men. Cis men do have a more naturally occurring uh, risk of cardiovascular diseases as women, and this is especially important to note if your family has a history of cardiovascular diseases, and you need to make sure that your doctor is aware of this. Thankfully, though, there is no, there was no recorded increase in cardiovascular disease mortality in masculinizing HRT. Transfeminizing HRT does have some more long-term health risks. Um, it increases the risk of thromboembolic events, which, again, is the severe blood clots in your deep veins or arteries, but it is much rarer in low doses of uh, feminizing HRT, which is actually recommended by professionals anyways. Additionally, it does come with a higher risk of cardiovascular disease mortality than those of cis women, as your body does naturally have a higher risk than a cis woman. But both of these symptoms are no higher than that of a cis woman also taking estrogen. And a cis woman might take estrogen uh, because of menopause or any other issues if she had to get a hysterectomy. Um, in order to regulate her body, she may take estrogen as well. So these risks have been a these risk these risks have not been severe enough to uh, to not allow cis women to take estrogen, which is why these risks aren't severe enough to stop trans women from taking estrogen. So those are the observed long-term health effects. 
HRT is a very important part of many people's transitions. So it's incredibly important to have the proper knowledge of the process, the changes, how to get to it, as we mentioned, like how to get it, as we mentioned last time, and any of the long-term health risks that are that have been studied. And also, as mentioned last, uh, not last time, but in two episodes ago, the first episode of So You Think You Might Be Trans, if you don't want to go through HRT, you are still completely valid. If you only want to start and get certain changes and then stop, that's fine. If you can't medically transition for any reason, you are still a very valid trans person. I'm not sharing this information to push it onto people who don't want it. And of course, I'm not pushing it to, you know, poison the youth. But to make sure that those who need this information have it so they know what to expect and can really fully consider what they want and what would be safe for their body. So... That wraps up our, t- our discussion of HRT. So I hope you guys learned something new. I also learned new things today. Um, so that's been very fun. I, I've been learning so many new things with this podcast. So thank you guys for giving me the opportunity. Um, but I hope you guys have a wonderful break and that everything is going smoothly. And I think, again, I, I'm not exactly sure the exact date of when this episode will go out, but I believe Christmas would have passed by this point. So if Christmas has passed and you celebrated, I hope you had a wonderful Christmas and that you got lovely gifts or just had a, had a very nice time. So that wraps up today's episode. I hope you guys have a great day and I will see you next week. Have a good one.